to Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. I am your host, Dolores Alfieri Taranto, and on this show we talk spirituality for the rest of us with a focus on the art of beautifying all facets of your life. We use heritage, culture, beauty by hand, ancestral traditions, and old world style as a means to do so. Welcome back, everyone, to this solo episode. I will be focusing on a single essay by the American writer Wendell Berry. Berry has been one of my favorite writers for decades now, and this essay in particular, which I'll tell you about in much more detail in a couple seconds here, is a really powerful one that really embodies a lot of what we talk about on this show. We waited for most of the winter so far up here in the Catskill Mountains of New York at our mountain house for snow, and it seems to all be coming at once. In one week, we've had uh, about two to three, maybe two and a half significant snowfalls. Today was another one. It is a lot of work for my husband, especially, (laughs) to shovel his way out of and and clear all the decks, etc. But it is really so beautiful to wake up to the trees surrounding us and the thick layers of white snow and more of it coming down. And of course, it's a great excuse to bundle up our son, our two-year-old son, put on his snow boots and send him out there for a little while, which we did today. And he was playing in the snow and making snowballs to the best of his ability and just having a great time. So winter is still definitely here upon us and we are We are doing our best to lean into it and to enjoy it. Lots of fires in the wood stove, lots of warm drinks like wine and scotch and lots of hearty dinners, chicken and meat and potatoes. And it's all been really nice. I hope you're all enjoying your winter so far. And speaking of warming wine... Let's take a minute or two here to talk about my beloved dry farm wines. If you've been listening to this season, you have heard me talk about dry farm wines, which is a subscription wine service that sources delicious, organic, biodynamic wines from around the world from small family vineyards. Every bottle has less than a gram of sugar, They are low alcohol, and the only ingredients is well-grown, consciously grown grapes. I have been enjoying Dry Farm Wines for several years now, way before we agreed to start working together. In fact, probably not surprising to you, I am the kind of person who will not represent something that I don't believe in and I don't love. So you can trust that if I'm talking about dry farm wines this much, it's because I stand behind their products, because I enjoy their products, and because I personally drink their products and put them on my dinner table to serve to the people that I love, like my family and friends. I want to thank all of you who have already used the link created specifically for Bella Figura listeners, which is dryfarmwines.com forward slash Bella Figura and received your penny bottle of wine in your first 
order. That's right. If you use my link, you can get a bottle for just a penny in your first order. Enjoy these gorgeous bottles of wine from all different regions of the world. So many of the wines I receive are from some of my favorite places like France and Italy, and I just feel good opening up a bottle of one of these wines because I know that I'm treating my body well. I'm treating well the bodies of those that I'm serving the wine to, which again is usually people I love. And I know that the wine itself was made in accordance with things that matter to me, like land stewardship, taking care of the land, not using chemicals, not injuring wildlife, and just overall old world values that deeply resonate with me. So if you're interested in all of those things, and I think that if you're a listener of this podcast, you probably are, please use my link dryfarmwines.com forward slash Bella Figura to receive a bottle for just a penny in your first order. And I just like to add that these bottles of wine are a little more expensive than ones you're gonna buy at the grocery store or the liquor store right off the shelf. But as I've said before, for that extra 10 to $15, you're getting wine that has no added toxins, no added dyes, no added chemicals, no added refined sugar, which those cheaper bottles, I promise you, have. There are a host dozens, tens of dozens of chemicals and additives that wine companies are not required to tell you about on the labels. I say drink better, not more. Instead of buying two of those bottles, buy one beautiful one from Dry Farm and know that you are drinking wine in accordance with your values and your old world style. Again, that's dryformwines.com forward slash Bella Figura for your penny bottle in your first order. And I will link to that in the show notes. And lastly, but not least, before we jump in to talking about Wendell Berry's essay, just a reminder that I do have an online shop on Etsy where I am offering things that align with so many of the things we talk about on this show, vintage items, jewelry that aligns with the things we discuss, and many of my photographs that also capture the beauty by hand, ancestral traditions, and old world style we all love so dearly. So please check out my shop. It's called Bella Figura Shop with two Ps. Etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Bella Figura store. And I will link to that in the show notes. Okay, so for today's episode, I'm going to be talking about an essay titled Family Work by Wendell Berry, which was published in 1980. And if you follow me on Instagram, you probably saw a few weeks ago where I quoted an excerpt from this essay that resonated with many of you. And by the way, if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should. I am at Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Taranto, and you can find that handle in the show notes as well. So I pulled together this bio of Wendell Berry from the Poetry Foundation's website. So let's start there by giving you a little bit of background on this writer. 
Poet novelist and environmentalist Wendell Berry lives in Port Royal, Kentucky, near his birthplace. Mistrustful of technology, he holds deep reverence for the land and is a staunch defender of agrarian values. He is the author of over 50 books of poetry, fiction, and essays. His poetry celebrates the holiness of life and everyday miracles often taken for granted. Critics and scholars have acknowledged Wendell Berry as a master of many literary genres, but whether he is writing poetry, fiction, or essays, his message is essentially the same. Humans must learn to live in harmony with the natural rhythms of the earth or perish. Berry further believes that traditional values such as marital fidelity and strong community ties are essential for the survival of humankind. At the time of this podcast's recording, Barry is 87 years old. So in a nutshell, to begin, we'll start with Barry's premise in this essay, Family Work. So he starts from the premise that good food and growing that food ourselves leads to healthier families. But even more so, it fosters a sense of connection within a family. It gives everyone responsibility. It transforms the home from a shelter, let's say, to a place to be. And I'm using be in the larger sense of live, exist, have one's being, dwell. So I'll start with quoting from the beginning of the essay. We like the thought that the outdoor work that improves our health should produce food of excellent quality that, in turn, also improves and safeguards our health. We like no less the thought that the home production of food can improve the quality of family life. Not only do we intend to give our children better food than we can buy for them at the store, we also know that growing and preparing food at home can provide family work. Work for everybody. And by thus elaborating household chores and obligations, we hope to strengthen the bonds of interest, loyalty, affection, and cooperation that keep families together. So you see there in that opening passage, he's really getting at the fact that work and kind of honestly, as we'll get into an old fashioned sense of work around the home for the survival of the home, for the necessities of the home, fosters a sense of togetherness. Not really difficult to understand. I think that all of you listening can make that connection. But as with the other solo topics I've picked here, it's, it's almost as if they're, they're so obvious we don't see them. They're so right there. We don't really have the ability to break them down. And that's why I like doing these episodes and using these essays or books to give us some space and see them really clearly, so clearly that we can possibly even begin to implement changes in our lives because of the things that we now understand and can articulate. So to begin, in reading this essay, again, preparing for this episode, I was thinking again and again of episode one guest, episode one for this season, Angela Reed of Parisian Farm Girl. And in that episode, you can, of course, go back and listen to it if you haven't, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Angela explained that she basically started farming because she had children. And in looking at her children 
and looking at the world, she began to wonder how could she raise them with the values and the ethics that she wanted them to have. And she realized that having a farm was really the best way she could do that. She couldn't think of any other way to raise her sons, for instance, into men and her daughters into women than farm chores, giving them responsibility, making the family have work based around the home. Otherwise, in today's day and age, think about it. Children really have no other responsibilities. Now, you may say you have to wash the dishes or you have to cut the lawn. But those are few and far between. Otherwise, everything is done for them in one way or another for the most part. Now, there's always gradations to these generalizations, of course, There are always different kinds of families. There are always people in different economic groups, social groups that may be working from a very young age, literally at a job to help support the family. So I understand that. Please know that I understand that. I am generalizing here grandly in the sense of the majority of America and certainly the majority in in the sense of what is expected of children and what is expected of families in accordance with society's current values. So just keep that in mind. And Angela basically said, you know, that she felt there are few other powerful ways to shape their character in this modern world. And to elaborate a little bit on that, I'm going to read again here from Barry's essay. 40 years ago, for most of our people, whether they lived in the country or in town, this was less an ideal than a necessity, enforced both by tradition and by need. As is often so, it was only after family life and family work became, allegedly, unnecessary that we began to think of them as ideals. So as Angela's description of consciously choosing this way of life points to, Barry goes on to explain that what once was a necessity has now become an ideal. So something that people strive for. And he adds one, for that matter, that receives pretty much no help from society in trying to uphold it. I do think that the ideal is more difficult now than it was, Barry says. We are trying to uphold it now mainly by will without much help from necessity, and with no help at all from custom or public value. For most people now do seem to think that family life and family work are unnecessary, and this thought has been institutionalized in our economy and in our public values. Never before has private life been so preyed upon by public life. How can we preserve family life? If by that we mean, as I think we must, home life, when our attention is so forcibly drawn away from home. So now he's really getting into the heart of his argument. The once upon a time necessities of our culture, which meant that children had to farm, children had to chop wood, children had to help with chores, real heavy chores around the house, or else the family would not survive, has been replaced by those things being an ideal or something, for instance, 
as an Angela Reed might consciously choose to take on. And he further goes to explain society is not helping in any way. Someone like an Angela, just to continue with using her as an example, is really not helping her with all its contrary forces to maintain that ideal. But what people like her are striving for is this idea of a vibrant home life. And synonymous with a vibrant home life, according to Barry, is family work life. So the two go together. There has to be work done in the home, around the home, in order for the home to be a place of connection. And later on in the essay, he'll say something along the lines of to feel like a home and not a motel, which of course means a place where people just come in and out to sleep. And as we will see as we go on here in this episode, that is what consumerism, advertising, and the various other forces that want you to buy their products and spend your money want you to think of your home. They want you to think that it is simply a rest stop, simply a motel. And as I've said before, the reason that I wanted to do the theme of home for this season is because, of course, home means a lot to me in its various levels. And I'm a I'm a homebody, but I also think the past two years, we had no choice but to stay home. We had no choice but to turn into this space that once upon a time was the world for so many people. It was an entire economic system, an entire ecosystem in some ways. And we were forced to revisit that idea. We had to cook for ourselves. We had to make bread for ourselves. We had to find ways to entertain ourselves and we had to do work in our homes. Now, I understand for many of us, the nature of that work was different. Perhaps we were working remotely, et cetera, but it also ignited a great interest in old school ways of taking care of ourselves in the home, like baking with sourdough and canning and baking bread and jarring and just cooking from scratch in general. People bought chickens and suddenly wanted to have mini farms in their backyards so they could grow and tend to their own food production, their own eggs, possibly if they were brave enough, their own meat. So what created this big shift from the home being the center of our worlds to a place that we really just come into to sleep, watch television, and leave? Barry says, automobiles, supposedly cheap fuel, and television. To begin, Barry really places the blame on television And I think having published this essay in 1980, that possibly what he really means is advertising, which of course, as we know today, is literally everywhere. He says, 
TV and other media have learned to suggest with increasing subtlety and callousness, especially and most wickedly to children, that it is better to consume than to produce, to buy than to grow or to make, to go out than to stay home. If you have a TV, your children will be subjected almost from the cradle to an overwhelming insinuation that all worth experiencing is somewhere else and that all worth having must be bought. The purpose is blatantly to supplant the joy and beauty of health with cosmetics, clothes, cars, and ready-made desserts. There is clearly too narrow a limit on how much money can be made from health, but the profitability of disease especially disease of spirit or character, has, so far, for profiteers, no visible limit. Now, that essay was written 40 years ago, and the idea that illness is profitable has not gone away by a long shot. If anything, it is only more true today than it was. So underlying this argument is the idea that your home life, your self-sustaining home life, full of good food you grow yourself or largely grow yourself or even grow a little bit of it yourself, and a home where the family all has work to do around the home to keep it going and to keep themselves together and where the television is not the focus of the home That is a threat to the profitability of all these other entities and forces that need you to buy their products, to buy their ready-made desserts, their cosmetics, their clothes, and their cars. If you don't need those things anymore, they will not make their billions. So interestingly, I can't help as I read this to wonder what he might think of subscription services where there are no commercials and where parents can choose what content to play for their children. Or for instance, something like the Italian language cartoon subscription that I pay for, for my son. And when he does watch it, he repeats all the words beautifully in a wonderful Italian accent. My point here being television today is drastically different from 1980s television or late 70s television where you were watching several cable channels with their commercials, with whatever they presented to you, with whatever product they were pushing. So while I do think the greater issue of television is something to discuss, and I will here in a second, I just want to point that out that we may be in a time where possibly, just possibly, or perhaps I'm hoping We can balance that out a little bit. We do consciously try to limit not only our son's television intake, but also our own. I mean, we fail at times, to be sure, when it's seven degrees outside and the second snowfall of the week is coming down. The sofa, a movie, and a blanket are really calling to us. But again, we just try to be aware of what it is he's watching and really almost never watch anything that has commercials because they just invade your home with such chaos and racket and static noise that none of us needs. I think what 
my husband and I worry about more is another thing season one guest Angela Reed brought up, which is the idea that we humans are bent toward laziness. We are bent toward the easy path. We have to push ourselves. We have to motivate ourselves to keep going and be productive and to challenge ourselves. Another very compelling aspect of this essay is Barry including public education as one of the causes that has led to this dissolution of home slash family life. He writes, another cause and one that seems particularly regrettable is public education. The idea that the public should be educated is altogether salutary. And since we insist on making this education compulsory, we ought in reason to reconcile ourselves to the likelihood that it will be mainly poor. I am not nearly so much concerned about its quality as I am about its length. My impression is that the chief, if unadmitted purpose of the school system is to keep children away from home as much as possible. Now that kind of blew my mind. And he goes on to say that when his children are, were in school, with the consolidation of school systems, it was two hours to school and then whatever it is, seven hours in school, two hours home. And then if they did after school activities, that was 11 hours away from home. And we see this in our society with after school sports and dance and all the bazillion activities that children are involved in. And someone at my age, I really recall the shift because I used to play sports, but they did not take me away from home with the vigor that I see my nieces and nephews or my cousin's children, for instance, today taken away from home by these activities. They really do supplant the family. They supplant family life. How many dinners, how many parties, how many things are missed by children in this country because they're playing after school sports or other activities on top of already being away from home for that stretch of time. That's just something to think about. We forget that this is a relatively new development. Again, for decades, centuries even, children were educated at home, and if not at home, very, very close to home in a tiny schoolhouse that they went to, they likely walked to along with their friends or siblings and walked right back home from. So their time away from home was drastically reduced. Again, the emphasis was on home. The emphasis was on family life. That was their center point. It wasn't just a place to drop their book bags and fall asleep and possibly shove some food into their mouths and watch television until they fell asleep. It is a complete shift. It is a completely different paradigm and how we set up our lives and how especially our home lives function. Barry goes on to write, where we live is also a place where our interest and our effort can be, but they can't be there by the means and modes of consumption. If we consume nothing but what we buy, we are living in the economy, in television land, not at home. It is productivity that writes the balance and brings us home. Any way at all of joining and using the air and light 
and weather of your own place, even if it is only a window box, even if it is only an opened window, is a making and a having that you cannot get from TV or government or school. That local productivity, however small, is a gift. Now, I am fully aware as a mother myself that getting rid of the television is extremely difficult. And I understand if that was your reaction when I read that. It was mine. And that's why I mentioned some of our issues in the house with television and some of the ways we try to mitigate that. So as an honest writer, Barry also talks about the fact that likely if you deny your child television, he will grow to want television badly and to be at his friend's house watching it. Now, honestly, in my experience, this is true. I know parents who did not let their kids watch television until they were four years old or five years old. And those children would watch a donkey standing still in black and white for an hour straight in a catatonic state if that's what was on the television and they were permitted to sit there and watch it. I almost feel as though that is that is a risk of completely eliminating anything from your child's life. It seems that when we are denied strictly and harshly anything, when we can get our hands around it, we become addicts, obsessed, engrossed, and to say the least, overindulge. So Barry does bring this up. He says, what this means, I think, is about what it has always meant. Children, no matter how nurtured at home, must be risked to the world. And parenthood is not an exact science, but a vexed privilege and a blessed trial, absolutely necessary and not altogether possible. So I love that phrase, children must be risked to the world. And his point is that your children are not raised only by you. They're raised by the school you send them to. They're raised by their friends, their relatives, and I see this more and more as my son is growing up, the influence of his older cousins or his uncles, and he's developing his own personality and traits, and some of them come from their influence, and I can't always control it. So for instance, just to reference again to the television, another reason why I try to be kind of zen as much as possible with the television is we often leave him with family. My mother most often, and my mother is an older, widowed Italian woman, and I'm not going to tell her she has to have the television off all of the hours that she's watching my son because she watches him a lot. It's not fair to her. I'm not going to, I'm not going to impose that on her. That is a moment where I have to accept that children must be risked to the world. Now, of course, I trust her, and he's in the best hands he can possibly be, but that's just an example. At some point, your control has to to, uh, loosen. Your grip has to loosen. Now, of course, I do, however, tell her that I don't want her putting on Nickelodeon or any of the other kids' cartoons you find on cable television because not only are they as empty as a cake made with refined white sugar, they are loaded with commercials, which is exactly the evil, if I may. It's exactly the damage that Barry is pointing to. And just as an aside, 
I remember when I was little, I grew up with the home cooked meal on the table almost pretty much every night and food from the garden and preserves and fresh meat from the farm and so on. And I remember that I, along with my cousin who grew up next door to me, we always wanted TV dinners. We wanted gross frozen TV dinners. I can still see them. This nasty fried chicken that you microwaved with a with a uh, microwaved brownie. And if we went to the supermarket with one of our parents and begged them enough and they let us get one each, we were in heaven. And that was because we never ate things like that. But Barry doesn't leave us there in that despair. He says that and then he takes us to his next point, which is that really... Raising children, taking care of our families, cultivating a home life is a long game. It's not a sprint, and you do it with your eye on the finish line of a marathon, of the long run. He writes, but I have thought, too, that the term of human judgment is longer than parenthood, that the upbringing we give our children is not just for their childhood, but for all their lives. And it is surely the duty of the older generation to be embarrassingly old-fashioned, for the claims of the, quote, newness of any younger generation are mostly frivolous. The young are born to the human condition more than to their time, and they face mainly the same trials and obligations as their elders have faced. So he's saying, we raise our children for all their lives, not just childhood. And I'm a perfect example of that. There I was as a child wanting to eat the TV dinners because they were denied to me. And on occasion, it really was very rarely, but on occasion, I got them. But overall, it was not accepted. It was not what we did. And I may have wanted and desired that as a child. And perhaps my parents thought they were failing. But look at me now just as it turned out to be with my parents. While I may have wanted those as a child, here I am as an adult, gardening, canning, cooking from scratch. And it's all a direct result of my upbringing. My parents stayed the course. They stuck with what they knew was right because they were thinking of the long road. They were thinking of me later on in life as an adult. And they knew that they were instilling those things in me for not just my childhood, but my entire life. And I'll read the end of this essay here. The real failure, Barry writes, is to give in. If we make our house a household instead of a motel, provide healthy nourishment for mind and body, enforce moral distinctions and restraints, teach essential skills and disciplines and require their use, There is no certainty that we are providing our children a better life that they will embrace wholeheartedly during childhood, but we are providing them a choice that they may make intelligently as adults. So to sum up, Barry links family work with a robust home life. The two go together, the one leads to the other. And if there is no family work to do together, it becomes difficult to keep home. And by that, he means family life intact. 
The purpose of media and advertising, as well as the public school system, is to largely disrupt family life because there is more money to be made in convincing you that you have to go out, to go somewhere, to buy something, and most damningly convincing your children that they need to be anywhere but home in order to be modern and on the cusp of what's cool and hip. I mean, I didn't realize until I got older, but it seemed growing up and as we got you know, to college and in our 20s, those of us who went to college, that it seemed a badge of success if you left our hometown. And we didn't grow up you know, in the middle of nowhere. We grew up right outside New York City, in a suburb outside New York City. And even still, that push, that push that you have to leave home, that being gone equals success. That push, that home is a place you are not supposed to settle into was so pervasive that it seemed everybody felt it didn't even matter necessarily where they went. They just had to get out. And I realize now that that is a direct result of all these things that Barry is writing about. It's the media, it's companies, it's advertising, teaching us from a very young age that anywhere but home is better. That we need to be spending our money, that we need to be out in restaurants, out at clubs, whatever it is, constantly in order to be alive. So I wanted to highlight this essay because I think you guys will really appreciate its tenants. This is, of course, not an exhaustive conversation. I mean, I've spent the entire season pretty much in different ways talking about this. So this was just one more aspect. And I hope that it helps you just look at things a little differently, perhaps articulate them more clearly so that we can see what we're really dealing with here in this modern world and perhaps do our best to adjust so that we live a real life, a real, honest, true, deep life that goes past all the things we're fed and taught and told by people who just want to push us out of our homes, away from our families, and get our money in their pockets. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode We will be back next week with a final episode of season two where the theme is home. And after that episode, I will take a short two-week break and then I will be back with season three, which has a brand new theme that I will announce later on at the beginning of season three. So stay tuned. If you're not following the show on iTunes or Spotify, please do so that you will know when a new episode is published. It'll automatically show up in your feed. Here's to knowing your roots and cultivating a beautiful life from their power. Mm-hmm.